All right. Well, I am excited this morning to be jumping back into the Sermon on the Mount, this master class of sorts that Jesus gave on what it means to be one of his followers, to be a disciple of Jesus. So we're actually going to start, as we have a number of times in the last little while, with having you read this passage. If it's just you watching this, just read it out loud yourself. If you're with others, have delegate somebody to read it out loud for you. But go ahead and do that. Read Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 14. And then if you have some time left over, have a little bit of a conversation. What thoughts or questions or feelings came up in you as you read this passage? And then at the end of that, take a couple moments to pause, have a few deep breaths, think about how you're feeling, and invite the Spirit to speak to you through this, this passage this morning. Okay, go ahead. Okay, here is a little outline for the three themes or topics that Jesus is going to hit on in this passage that we're going to look at this morning. First, he's going to give us some instructions about how we are to approach God. Secondly, he's going to help us think, okay, if that's how we're to approach God, then, then how does that affect the way that we approach each other? And finally, we're going to get an important reminder or some important truths about what it means to follow Jesus. Those are three sort of themes that we're going to look at this morning. But before we jump into kind of going verse by verse through this passage, we're actually going to have another little discussion. And here's what I'd like you to talk about. I would argue that for each of us, when we were growing up, we over time learned the conditions or the right sort of factors to look for in whoever our primary caregiver was. For some of us, that'll be parents, a parent, maybe a a grandparent, uh, aunt and uncle, whoever the, the primary person who raised you. Think about the sort of criteria or the factors that you knew to look for when you needed to ask for something really ask for something big, okay? I texted my brother and sister this week uh, to, I had some ideas, but just to say, what were some of these for us growing up? And my brother, like me, is terrible at texting back, so he never got back to me. But my sister reminded me of a couple things, that because there were three of us, you sometimes would try and get at least one of the other siblings on your side. So then you were kind of two against one, if it was a decision to be made amongst the siblings. Or, and I hope I'm just not giving all this ammunition to any kids that are watching this, uh, she, as uh, my family's only uh, daughter, would sometimes try and single out my dad. And us boys would sometimes try and, you know, find a moment where dad wasn't around and we could just talk to mom. So that, that's a little bit maniacal. But I, I want you to take a minute, discuss this with whoever you're with, uh, and here's the thing. I recognize that for some of us this will bring up maybe funny memories, for others of us, this might be a little bit, there might be some mixed emotions or maybe even some painful ones um, that come out of reflecting on this because maybe you'll recognize or you'll be reminded that it was really hard to ask for things. So I want you to know I, I recognize that. But have this conversation and then consider for a couple of minutes, if you have any time left, uh, what feelings these memories do raise in you. Okay, go ahead and discuss. Okay, you're probably already seeing the connection. This morning, we're going to consider a radical statement that Jesus makes regarding how we ought to approach our Heavenly Father with requests. 
So let's look at Matthew 7, verses 7 to 8. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now, I want to be honest with you. There are times... As a pastor, someone who teaches regularly for a church community, there are some passages or some weeks that you come to where you're teaching and the message that you're preparing scares you a little bit. This is one of those messages. Let me tell you why. First of all, it's really two reasons. First, this passage, I think, is so prone to our misconstrual and misappropriation. We are prone to misconstrue what Jesus says and then maybe misappropriate or misapply it to life. And I think this could happen in particular for a couple of reasons. Some some predominant uh, cultural values in the world around us. The first one is, I think we can all recognize, we live in quite a consumeristic society where we hear this message that newer and bigger and more are basically always better, right? Newer, more, bigger. The Thompson Red book on advertising kind of summarizes or, or encapsulate this, encapsulates this in an interesting way. It was a book that came out in 1901, I think, on advertising, and it says this. Advertising aims to teach people that they have wants which they did not recognize before and where such wants can be best supplied. And so in this kind of a culture that we live in, if these are the waters that we're swimming in, this statement, ask and it will be given to you. Man, I think, Jesus, why did you have to say it that way? Likewise, I think we can all recognize that we live in quite an individualistic society. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus, in, in, in the midst of Jesus' teaching that, you know, we need to determine where our allegiance is, where, where our loyalties lie, whom we are serving, because we're going to serve someone. I said, many of us will balk at that, because we live in this world that says, no, you're in charge of your life. And so, in this individualistic society, we are told over and over and over again that you must pursue, discover, and declare your truth. And so, for Jesus to say, seek, and you will find, again, I think, oh, Couldn't you have been a little clearer, Jesus? A little more specific. But then there's another reason that this passage scares me a little bit, if I'm honest. And it's not that someone would, um, you know, inadvertently sort of be be swimming in the values, the the, the idols of our culture and misapply this. There's also this fear that I have that someone might come to Jesus' words in humility, full of hope, taking Jesus at his word, praying big, bold prayers, not see those prayers come to pass and feel real, tangible disappointment. There are probably some of you who have experienced that. What do we do with that? So the question that we end up asking is, how do we understand these words of Jesus? What do we do with them? Well, thankfully, Jesus gives us a metaphor to help us understand this promise that he makes. Look at verses 9 to 11. Jesus says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who, are, who ask him? Now, 
because some of us may have just gotten stuck on Jesus uh, calling us all evil, or at least his audience there, let's, let's quickly define what Jesus is meaning there. He is not meaning that each of us is as bad as we possibly could be, but it's the idea of our fallen nature. The idea that we, as human beings living in a fallen world, are naturally bent towards brokenness and corruption. And he's saying, if even we, fallen human beings, have this internal sense of how a parent ought to treat their child, it doesn't mean that those of us who are parents will always live up to that sense, or even those of us who don't have children, as we look in the world around us, we constantly see examples, sadly, tragically, of a parent failing their child, but we have this sense of how it ought to be. And so Jesus uses this metaphor to help clarify the promise that he makes in really two ways. First, consider what this, this imaginary child is asking for. They ask for bread and fish. In Jesus' day, these were the staples, the basics for us in Guelph. You know, uh, uh, lentils and kale, I don't know. Um, the basics, right? No more. So we, we get some clarification based on what this child is asking for. They're not asking for the world. They're asking for basic provision, but also the context in which that request is made. And it's in the context of a family. And this has been the context of so much of these uh, recent teachings in the Sermon on the Mount that we've been looking at over the last number of weeks. Think back to Jesus teaching us how to pray. Matthew 6, verse 9. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so too, he says in our passage, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, it's probably straightforward that understanding that the, the, the child in Jesus' small little parable there, that they're only asking for the basics. That, that serves to help clarify Jesus' promise in, in a relatively straightforward way. But how does Jesus putting that, that promise in the context of a family relationship, how does that serve to help us interpret Jesus' promise, ask and you will receive? How does that help us interpret that rightly? That's maybe a little bit less clear. Well, here's, here's how I think it clarifies this big promise that Jesus makes. If you and I are becoming the kinds of people who go to our Heavenly Father daily in prayer, who are ensuring that our loyalties, our allegiance is firmly with Him, who are giving up worrying about tomorrow because we know that our Father is watching over us, then we can trust that our hearts are being aligned with his. And the requests that we'll bring to him will be more and more in line with his heart for us in the world. In other words, we're not going to come to God with our lottery ticket saying, God, make this a winner. Demanding that he do that for us because we know that we're going to receive daily bread. Craig Blomberg, in his commentary, summarizes it this way. The good gifts 
God gives include everything that pertains to seeking first his kingdom and its righteousness. They do not necessarily correspond to everything for which we ask. But now I want to say something. I mean, I guess I've been saying lots of things, but I'm going to say something new. You could be forgiven. I I, I would understand if at this moment you were feeling as though I have just so overqualified or built so many sort of guardrails around this promise that Jesus makes that it's almost meaningless or it's lost all of its power, right? It's, you could be forgiven if sort of hearing everything I've just said and you're thinking, okay, so you're saying, yes, you know, ask and you will receive, but just don't ask too much and and make sure you're asking for the right things. And, And then, you know, you'll definitely get, you know, what you've asked for. And you're thinking, man, it seems to kind of take some of the life out of this promise that Jesus has made. And I think in some ways, you'd be right. I think everything that we just explored, that, you know, as our hearts are being aligned with our Heavenly Father, we're going to ask for for things that are aligned with His heart for us and for the world. But I think the real key for keeping the magic, the wonder in this promise that Jesus has made, is returning back to something we've already said, that this is, this promise is made in the context of a family. When we come to God as children to a loving father, it allows us to bring huge, bold requests, trusting that we will get what is good and allowing us to be secure in the knowledge that we have an open invitation to come back when we feel disappointed or ignored. Let me say that again. When we come to God as children come to a loving Father, it allows us to bring big, bold requests. Our youngest, Cooper, just turned three a couple of months ago. And leading up to his birthday, we'd say, Cooper, what do you want for your birthday? And his answer consistently was, an ATV, Dad. I want an ATV. You will not be surprised to hear that Cooper, our three-year-old, didn't get an ATV for his birthday. Now, I think he actually had an incredible birthday and got some really fun things that he and his brother are enjoying together. But you know what? I wouldn't change the fact that Cooper felt like he could come and ask me that. I wouldn't change that for the world. When we come as children to a loving father, we can come with big, bold requests and we can trust that we will get what is good, not necessarily what we are demanding. But we can also be secure in the knowledge that as we work all this out, as we make these prayers, and perhaps we feel like there's no answer, or the answer isn't what we had hoped, we have this open door to come back to a loving Heavenly Father and express our disappointment, express our confusion. God wants us to come and make those prayers just as much as he wants the original request. Archie France, in his commentary on the book of Matthew, summarizes this wonderfully. He says, For all the necessary caution, all those things we talked about, there's an openness which invites not merely a resigned acceptance of what the Father gives, but a willingness to explore the extent of his generosity, secure in the knowledge that only what is good will be given. 
so that mistakes in prayer through human short-sightedness won't rebound on those praying. There is, fortunately, nothing inevitable or mechanical about God's answers to his people's requests. We do not serve one of those vengeful gods that we read about in fairy tales, who someone makes this kind of short-sighted prayer or plea or wish and they're granted it because this petty God knows that actually it'll turn out to be a curse. We do not serve that kind of God, friends. We serve a loving Father. Now, let's follow this transition that Jesus makes. How we approach God affects how we approach others. And we see this over and over in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus moving back and forth from describing a right relationship with our Heavenly Father and right relationships with those around us and how the two are inextricably linked. Look at verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. There was often this uh, kind of challenge given to teachers um, in Jewish culture of summarizing the law. We see this kind of question put to Jesus in various ways at different points in the Gospels. There's this story of this question being put to Rabbi Hillel by a, a Gentile. And I guess how the question was framed is, is this, this person, this questioner, started hopping on one foot and said, as long as I can hop on one foot is how long you have to summarize the law. And Rabbi Hillel answered, Do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. Very similar to how Jesus summarizes the law, but a bit different. Let me read that again. Do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. Jesus, on the other hand, his summary is somewhat unique. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. There's an active Versus a passive. So I want us to have another quick discussion with whomever you're with about the implications of how Jesus phrases what we have so often called the golden rule versus how others phrased it in sort of the negative. What are the implications of that? Let's talk for a couple minutes. You probably found or or realized that this puts a greater responsibility on us, on our our uh, posture towards the people, the world around us. Robert Mounts, uh, in his commentary, uh, summarizes it this way. In its negative form, like the way Rabbi Hillel summarizes the golden rule, in its negative form, the golden rule could be satisfied by doing nothing. The positive form moves us to action on behalf of others. And friends, isn't this the way of Jesus, who came to us, in love, who made the first move, who incarnated, dwelled with us. And really, this is sort of a natural, uh, a natural connection to what we've just talked about in the first part of this teaching. As you and I become more secure in the knowledge that our Heavenly Father will meet every need, but also is, is loving and, and the door is open enough for us to come and make big, bold requests, we become, I would think, I would hope, increasingly sort of non-anxious people, a non-anxious presence in the world around us. 
And we're able to be for others in a ways that we couldn't be if we're concerned with tomorrow, if we're concerned, if we're looking at the world around us and needing more, bigger, better, always. Finally, Jesus gives this important reminder. And in some ways, he kind of steps back, it feels like, for a moment. See, there's a danger. The danger is with simple uh, little sayings or, or uh, commands, we can start to present the Christian life as quite straightforward, almost inevitable that people would live this way. Why, why wouldn't they? Of course you want to be treated the way that you want others to treat. You know, you, you want us to sort of treat each other in reciprocal ways, doing good for each other. The Christian life, friends, following Jesus, being his disciple, is far from inevitable. Look at verses 13 to 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This sort of metaphor of a narrow gate is Jesus is referring to a city entrance, an entrance through a wall into a city that was likely harder to find, maybe a little more out of the way, and as a result, it was often forgotten or avoided. And Jesus' words remind us of two important truths. First is the Christian life isn't easy, and we shouldn't expect it to be. And secondly, every person who comes to faith in Jesus is a miracle. As I said first, the Christian life isn't easy and we shouldn't expect it to be. Friends, the world we live in is actively discipling us day by day in a different direction than the Sermon on the Mount would lead us. It's painting a different kind of life than the sermon paints. The world around us tells us that it's not natural to come to God full of hope and expectation. Rather, we should come skeptically, you know, likely he doesn't even exist, and, and, you know, cynically, even if he does, he's probably not for our good. The world would tell us that it's not natural to be for the good of those around us, maybe those who are ideologically aligned with us in every way, shape, and form, but if someone thinks differently on, on a certain issue, then how could we be for them? How could we be for an enemy in that sense? The Christian life is not easy, friends. It swims against what our world teaches us day by day. It's a narrow way. And secondly, every person who comes to faith in Jesus is a miracle. It's not inevitable. It's a miracle happening before our eyes. And friends, when I hear Jesus' words... The gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many, but for this way that leads to life, the gate is narrow, the way is hard, those who find it are few. I feel a little bit anxious, a little bit overwhelmed even. And so, if you feel any of that, I think we ought to end where we began, remembering the promise made at the start. Ask and it will be given to you. Mission, friends, must start with prayer. And so, in our last couple of minutes, I would like, you, I would like to leave you with one more opportunity to discuss. First, 
how do these words make you feel? How do Jesus' words about the narrow gate make you feel about the prospect of being on mission? And secondly, I'd like you to take a few minutes to pray some big, bold, hopeful prayers for those that you are in relationship with who are not yet following Jesus. Go ahead. Jesus, I thank you for this beautiful, big promise that you've made to us in this passage. I trust that those of us who are are followers of you are seeking day by day to, in partnership with the Spirit, align our hearts more towards our Heavenly Father, and that our prayers, our requests will be more in line with his will. But also, would you give us this childlike boldness and imagination to kind of explore the expansiveness of our Heavenly Father's generosity towards us? Knowing that even when we feel disappointment or frustration, that we can come back and have that conversation with our good, loving Father as well. Would we treat those in the world around us with this kind of generosity as much as we are able? And also I pray, God, that we would approach every conversation with those who are not yet following Jesus, every interaction, um, that we would cover those moments in prayer, but also be full of hope. We love you, Jesus. We pray that your kingdom would come in Guelph as it is in heaven. Amen.